0: Welcome to Talk To Be Well. I'm Finn, and I am on the Work To Be Well National Student Advisory Council. Joining Lena, Kelly, and myself are Dr. Robin Henderson, Executive Director of Behavioral Health at Providence, and Dr. Nathan Goins, clinical psychologist. Today, we will be discussing finding resources and seeking mental health help. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only, and it is not intended nor is it implied to be a substitute for professional advice. Thank you guys for being here. Glad to be here. Awesome, so uh, Dr. Robin and uh, Nate, can you both tell us what you do at Providence?
1: I'm Dr. Robin Henderson. I am a licensed clinical psychologist by training and I'm the Chief Executive of Behavioral Health for Providence here in Oregon. I'm also the Chief Clinical Officer for Working
2: Well.
3: And yeah, I'm Nate, I'm a psychologist who works with Providence in uh, one of our primary care clinics, Gateway Family Medicine. So I'm there as a part of our care team. Um, I also do a lot of work uh, with putting together programs to support the mental and emotional health of the people that work for Providence.
0: Well, again, we're so appreciative of you being here to have a chat with us today. So again, the conversation that we've been wanting to have is mental health help, and especially for teens, I think that when we talk about mental health help, the word therapy can be really, really scary for a lot of teens who don't know what that entails. So From your perspective, what would you tell to somebody? What can
3: you do during therapy? I mean, therapy can be so many different things. You know, it can. the whole idea is to really show up and meet a person where they are to really help understand what's going on. How do we help you move towards that place where you're living more of the life you want to be living, uh, to get through the stuff that comes up in a way that is congruent with who you want to be? And so it's really just a space for you to show up and bring your full self um, to be seen and to just work through those questions that everyone has from time to time.
1: You know, I always like to use this analogy that our emotions are like cottage cheese. And they come around in a container. And you've got this container of cottage cheese. And the therapy is the safe place where you can put your cottage cheese out on the table and you can sort through with somebody, and and it's kind of messy, but when you leave therapy, it's back in its container and it's safe. And I've spent a large portion of my career working in acute psychiatric care, which is basically when people have a cottage cheese container, and it, it's broken, and you can go to therapy. But but the reality is, you're you either need a new ch- cottage cheese container or you need some really good duct tape to get it put back together. And that's what I do. Acute psychiatric care, we don't do the therapy where we're gonna pick through all of your cottage cheese. We're gonna focus on your container and make sure you're stable enough to be able to go back to uh, my good friend, Dr. Nate, and do some therapy. So that's kind of the difference in what we do.
0: I love that analogy about the cottage cheese. <laughs> that's really awesome. So what if I don't struggle with mental illness? What if what I if am just your quote unquote average Joe? I don't have a diagnosis and I don't feel like I need therapy. What do you
3: say to me then? I mean, I say that everyone goes through stuff in life. Like, no one gets through this unscathed. Um, Everyday stress, I mean, not to mention, you know, everything we've been going through for the last, well, over a year at this point. Um, Plus, just, you know, those transitions in life, moving from one phase to another, and you're trying to figure out, I knew who I was, but I'm not sure who I am now, and I'm not sure where I'm going. Those are all excellent uh, points to reach out and connect with someone and work through those points. you know, moving through loss, grief, these are all things that aren't necessarily like mental illness in the way that we usually talk about it. They're normal human experiences, but they're still things that we really benefit from having someone to talk to about.
1: Yeah, I would agree. It's it's the transitional points in life, but also having somebody who's like not your partner or not your parent. Um, it can often be helpful to get perspective from somebody who's not of that world that's that close to you who can maybe look at a situation differently than people who know you well.
2: That's so great. I I definitely like the cottage cheese reference too. (laughs) So the next question we have is, is there a difference in therapy for adults versus therapy in teens, right? All three of us here are teens, and I know that I'm personally in therapy. I'm very interested in seeing, like, how does that evolve as I get older and what does that look like?
3: I mean, I guess the answer is kind of yes and no, like because the situations you're dealing with as a teen aren't going to be the ones you're going to be dealing with in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s. But the fundamental approach, which is to say, giving you that space, um, that's going to be the same no matter what. And the most important thing is not necessarily like the specific approach of your therapist, but you being able to feel safe, like you can really open up and be present. Um and as long as that's there, yeah. So does it look different for teens and adults? Yeah, usually, but that's more about the individual and what they're going through than it is anything else.
1: You know, somebody's been in therapy. I I was in therapy when I was at last I've done therapy throughout my life, throughout my adult life, at very different different points. And I can tell you that the yeah, the, the experience space is the same. The issues change, uh, but I think a lot of it comes down to that relationship between you and your therapist, because it's not always a good fit. And that's something that's really important for people to understand. Not all therapists are creating, well, not all of us are gonna relate to, You know, some people like my style, some people don't. And, and you've gotta find a therapist that fits for you at the stage in life
2: where you are to make that fit that's really great thank you so much that makes a lot of sense i like that the next question we have is is self-diagnosing bad especially like growing up with social media there's a ton of self-diagnosing on the media and what effect does that have on teens like me or even adults
1: oh i'm gonna jump first on this one yes self-diagnosing is bad and diagnosing your friends is bad too Google doc is not a physician is not a psychologist um, and all of the cosmopolitan self-help are- Awesome, awesome tools. If you really want to embarrass somebody early in a relationship, where you're sitting down with your partner and and wanting to go through the Cosmo quiz together, but again, these things are not These they are uh, not. This is this is how we create hypochondria. Uh, but this really is. Um, I I have so many times seen my own kids come and go. Oh, mom, I read on the internet. Da 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 da. That means I've got this, or I've got that, or I've got anything. However, at the same time, knowing yourself well enough to know when something's not right, you may not know what, but you may think something's not right and feel something's not right. That's a good time to get help.
3: Yeah, I agree with the both and, you know, um, I usually talk about things more in the sense of is it helping me or not helping me? And so I think a lot of what people are going for when they're trying to do this self-diagnosis thing is... Um, they're wanting to understand themselves and to have that, you know, way of saying, Oh, I'm not just like broken or something. Like there's an explanation for this, whatever. The challenge is that a lot of the stuff we're talking about is a way more complicated than, yeah. Like Robin was saying, you know, like a cosmopolitan quiz, or whatever can tell you. And so having that professional input to help you really actually figure out what is truly going on is so important because that helps, you know, what you can actually do about it to move through it. And that's that next step of the conversation. I do love like mental health TikTok because it's like normalizing mental health and it's giving people a lens to look and say, oh, okay, I see that in myself too. Okay, what about? And so the more that this is a normal conversation we have, the better. I just think we also need to remember that it's also a real thing, a very serious thing. And so making sure that you're pulling in that professional expert support is a big piece of the puzzle too.
2: I like that. Yeah, definitely like, Knowing when something's wrong is good, but you're not a professional and neither is Google, right? (laughs) Our next one we have is, if I have a friend that's struggling and I know that they're struggling, when should I go to their parents? Should I go to their parents? Like, as a therapist, who do you think is the right person to reach out to when you have a friend in need?
3: This is a really good question. Um, And I think that it comes down to... You know, there are different answers depending on our level of concern. Um, if you're really concerned about someone's safety, then absolutely. you know, going to whoever is going to be that person that's going to be able to keep your friends safe is absolutely the correct answer. Your friendship might take a hit, but that is so much better than the potential negative outcomes of this. That being said, if we're not to that point, you know, I, I always want to encourage people to Um, seek help themselves or to use their friends or their resources to go to get help together. So if you can help your friend get connected or to really encourage them to open up to their parents, then that's awesome. If their parents maybe aren't the safest receptacle for that conversation, then remembering that there are you know school counselors, teachers, uh, your doctor at your doctor's office, all of these are also really great people where people can have those conversations, move towards getting help.
1: You know, and the only thing I'd add into this is, is I'm also a big fan of you know, again the question that Dr. Nick pointed out with uh, when somebody is, is really in serious, serious danger and you feel that they're at risk to harm themselves or somebody else. Um, give somebody a time and saying, you know, I'm really worried about you, I'm concerned, and you gotta talk to somebody and I'm gonna give you, you know, twenty-four hours, forty-eight hours. And if you don't do it, you know, who are we gonna agree on that you're gonna to talk to? Is it gonna be your mom? Is it gonna be your counselor? I'm gonna give you 24 or 48 hours to talk to that person. And if you haven't, I'm gonna check back with you and I'm gonna do it. Because that sets that accountability and also provides protection.
4: Something I'm hearing a lot of is how mental health really affects people from all walks of life. And that really includes therapists as well. So another question we have is, how does a therapist take care of their own mental health after work?
3: Honestly, in a lot of the same ways that everyone else does. Um, you know, we all have our usual kind of coping strategies, you know, be it You know, the things that you hear your doctor recommending, you know, exercise, talking with friends, doing your hobbies, all that sort of stuff. That's still relevant for us as well. Um, Because of, you know, confidentiality and rules, obviously we can't just go talk about our day in the same way that someone else can. But we can talk about how our day impacted us. And that's usually the more important part anyway. Um, And having, you know, colleagues that you can open up to and uh, who understand that experience is also a big part of it.
1: Early in my career, um, I spent about a decade, maybe 10, 15 years uh, as a, what's called a forensic psychologist. Um, I would do child custody evaluations for Native American youth who were being considered for adoption or placement outside of a tribal family, outside of a Native American family. And I did these primarily in Oregon, Washington, a little bit in Alaska. And the stories uh, I worked with parents and with teens and the stories that I would hear about intergenerational trauma and, abuse and things like that were very very hard to hear and hard to hold and you know, when you're hearing things that are hard to hear and hard to hold um, it's very very important to have safe spaces that you can you know like what Dr. Nate was just talking about, talk about how that makes you feel and 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 check your um, check the man you're dealing with that, and have um, appropriate supervision and ability to release those things, and have some practices and rituals around that. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was doing that work. Um, you burnt a lot of sage, burnt a lot of sage because it was a ritual, really, to remind myself that that's that's part of my role in this. But as psychologists only thing we also have to remember is that. There are times that it sticks to you. There are times that you hear something and it sticks to you, and you have a reaction, and we call that transference, and of course countertransference, which when, as, as a professional, I'm having a reaction to my client because of my own stuff. So that's a big part of what we work through and work on uh, in our training is learning how to recognize when somebody told you something and it sticks to you, and you're reacting to them because of that. It's it's part of why. Um, there's licensure and regulations around therapy so that people don't just go out there hang a shingle and say yeah i'm here to take this all on because I can tell you, it's it, it having boundaries having emotional boundaries is what allows therapists to be able to do the what they do
4: yeah boundaries are huge we really appreciate you all sharing your experiences in the field with us and that is a really good segue for our next question which is actually how did you get involved in your profession? Like, what drew you to this area of work in the first place?
1: Well, um, when I was a college student at Willamette University, uh, doing my undergraduate work, uh, I was a music major and I was a classically trained pianist, and that was where I was. Headed. That's what I was going to do, it. And, and that was that. And then the infamous thing as I had a, a disagreement about the style of music, and at that time at Willamette, uh, they did not have just really a classical music program. And got into a row right with my long-term, per, you know, some, my my music professor who i had been with since I was in high school. and kind of came to an impasse, and uh, I had a crisis of consciousness. Going, I don't know that I want to be a classical pianist the rest of my life. What else can I do? Well, magically, there was this thing called a guy that I had a crush on, and he was a psych major, and I thought it was cool, and I thought, oh, well, this looks good. Why don't I do that? Oh, he's going to apply for an internship there. Why don't I do that? This will be great. I can work with him. This will be awesome. Well, two things happened. Number one, we did go to work at this uh, alcohol drug treatment facility with the uh, diagnosis at Uh, dual diagnosis adolescents who were uh, also involved in criminal justice system. uh, They were all felony offenders. And I was doing this when I was like, you know, 19, 20 years old. And I did get to work with him and it was great. And I fell absolutely in love with the field of mental health and he came out as gay. So there you go. You know, I didn't get the guy, but I got the career.
3: That's fantastic. I didn't know like any of that about you, Robin. So that's, that's great. Um, <laughs> for myself, uh, I started college as a pre-med. Um, I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I wanted to, you know, keep people moving was kind of the idea. Uh, very quickly realized I hated chemistry and switched majors. Uh, I liked my psychology professor as a freshman psych person. So I said, sure, why not? Let's give that a go. I had virtually no interest in being a psychologist. Um, I leaned into my photography. I worked as a wedding photographer for a few years after graduating. And one day looked around and said, well, this isn't really it either. And ended up wandering back over and thought, well, maybe that's psychology thing after all. Um, learned about the field of you know, behavioral health psychology, working in medical settings, that whole thing of helping people keep moving forward being that, uh, that theme that kept showing up. And the clinics that I choose to work in are always, um, they're places that are more underserved, um, have a lot more of that social justice advocacy side of the work. And that also is a big draw for me. So years later, here I am.
4: I love how life just takes us in all these unexpected directions. And yeah, I really enjoyed hearing about your experiences in the past and how you got involved with mental health in the first place. And since you were both very big experts in this field, what would be a piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self, either when you were like our age or even younger?
3: First of all, just get over it and go to therapy. (laughs) That's the number one thing I would say. Um, The second one would be, just something I was thinking about is, don't be afraid to take a few more risks because you'll learn pretty quickly that failing isn't that big of a deal and you can pick yourself up and keep going. Um, that's what I would say looking back.
1: I would say trust your gut because if your gut says this isn't it, it's not all that in the bag of chips, you don't have to do that. Um, trust. I would have trusted my gut a whole lot more. Uh, it took me decades to trust my intuition, trust my gut, and trust my instincts. Uh and uh that school of hard knocks has 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 uh, served me well. And uh, second thing would be if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck, people. It's a duck. All right. The the point being, um, if something situational a certain way or or acts a certain way, um that's really what it is. Learning to trust ourselves is one of the hardest things we do.
0: I love that, and I love the idea of really empowering teens to trust themselves and how they're feeling, because I think that we don't hear that a lot from the adult supports in our life. I think we hear a lot of, wait until you're older, this is a phase, you'll get over it. So speaking of the adult supports in our lives, because when you talk teens, you inevitably talk parents or our guardians. So what do you say to a parent who has a teen that's struggling and they don't know how to help them in any way? Obviously, we don't have any lived experience, so we would know what to tell them from a student's, from a kid's perspective. But from a psychology perspective, what do you tell that
3: parent? I say your job in this is to listen and really hear your child. If they're coming to you and telling you about this, it's real. Don't tell them they'll get over it. Don't tell them it's fine. Don't tell them. You know, they don't know anything because they're young and they don't know what real suffering is, whatever nonsense people tend to want to come up with. When you do work on getting your kid connected with help, don't talk about how therapy is expensive because that just makes them feel guilty for doing it. Don't ask them how much longer they're going to need this counseling thing. Show up, support, make sure that they have everything they need to get the help that they need. That's your job. That's your role as a parent It's to be there and to support and to care. And you're not going to be able to fix it. That's OK. Like, your job, that's, that's the differentiation here. Your your job in this is just to make sure they can get connected with people who can work with them to help them move through this. So that's your part.
1: I completely agree. You said that so well. I, um, yeah, I was reflecting on a few months ago um, I think I've been pretty open about the fact that my my daughter, Billy, has anorexia nervosa, And that was a really tough journey, uh, both as a psychologist, but, but as a parent, it was like extraordinary. And a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in years reached out, and and she said, you know, I've seen you talk, I've seen your stuff on on social, and, and I know you have experience with this. Her daughter had been diagnosed with anorexia and was going into uh, treatment, and she's like, as a parent, I want to do. I just want to. I want to do all these things for her. I want to protect her. I want to love her. I want to do this. It's like this is her journey, and your role as a parent in this is to set the conditions that you know. When you're when you're looking in in therapy and treatment for anorexia nervosa, um, for an adolescent, there are very specific things you have to do that are at times intrusive, but at times are also. Making that- absolutely sure that you're doing exactly what the therapist says and exactly what you know needs you know to goes against your instincts. I said, but the biggest thing you need, need to do is just accept her for who she is. unconditionally. And that unconditional positive regard is the most important thing we do as parents.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Robin, for sharing that vulnerable experience. And I'm, I'm so glad that you've, you've also found that empowerment in supporting um, your daughter. And so, I think also while staying on this conversation between parent and teen, there's often this sort of like other side of the coin that we don't really look at with teen mental health, and that is the hereditary nature of mental health. So how how hereditary is mental health? And how much how much does that relationship exist between teens and their parents and family history?
3: The genetic side of it varies quite a lot between conditions. Some conditions are really strongly heritable. Others doesn't seem to be much of a clear connection. The environmental factor though is a very big thing, regardless of whatever we're talking about in terms of genetics. Um, the way that we're raised influences how we see the world and how we see the world is usually what tends to kind of point towards the struggles we may end up running into later on down the line. Um, so a major thing that we talk about is what is your family history? You know, if you have family members who deal with this, what have they found helpful? Um, That includes, you know, the medications maybe that they've benefited from, as well as the therapy or behavioral approaches. Um, It also helps us understand the world that someone comes from and what that experience within that world was that leads them to where they are today. And then we can start doing some of that work to essentially say, okay, you know, you learned a certain set of directions for how to get through life, and maybe they worked for a while, but we're running into some points where they're not quite working. What do we do to make some adjustments so that your life trajectory maybe doesn't continue the same path?
1: We talk a lot, and I know we got some great curriculum around intergenerational trauma, and I think that's what starting getting at, is the idea that that there's there's nature and nurture, and we have this conversation all the time around uh, the nature is what structures are built like in your brain, and the nurture is the environment within which you live. And genetically speaking, there are some conditions that are more susceptible. Schizophrenia is one of them. Anorexia nervosa. These are things that we know that if you have a family history of, you're going to be more for. And how I liken this in in conversation is thinking about if you've got this infrastructure and a propensity then what happens around you can either push toward that and push into it and break that structure, or it can help build protective and more protective factors around that. And that too is why family history is important. Because if we know you've got a family history of schizophrenia or anorexia or something else like that or, or bipolar disorder, then we know that we're going to begin to build protective factors which include education. Education and empowerment is the biggest thing that we can do. This is why it's so important to talk about mental health conditions and understand what is bipolar disorder, what is uh, schizophrenia, what are the signs and symptoms, and what should I look to? We talk about this with cancer all the time. And I'm sure all of you know um, different types of cancer, screens, things like that, heart, you know, A1C, all this other good stuff that we talk about. But we don't talk about what are the factors that you should be looking for uh, in yourself, because you know, 14 to 24 years old, that is the time frame when 75% of all mental illness will present during your age range. You should be the most educated people in the universe on what signs and symptoms to look for in yourself and in your friends. And guess what? You're not. I'm hoping that work to be well is going to change that. I'm hoping that having these open conversations with teens and having teens be the drivers of this bus if this was breast cancer and 75% of all breast cancer started between the age of 14 and 24, no, we have to, we have to look for that. Trust me.
2: <laughs> that is so true, Robin. I yeah, I couldn't put it better. And especially being on work to be well with Kelly and Finn, I know we're really excited to keep working hard to try to fix that stigma that keeps getting created. So shifting to a more, I guess like right now topic is COVID, right? Everything we think about in COVID and that is so intrinsically linked to mental health it feels like right now, but as therapists and psychologists, what do you guys see with COVID? Is there a significant change in mental health or even mental health in teens right now due to this virus?
3: Yeah, I would absolutely say so. Um, The shift away from in-person school has been huge. Uh, With that, the loss of social connection, You know, the structure that comes from having to get up and do something in a certain way every day that kept people moving forward, Uh, having to suddenly just be home with your family all the time. And obviously for different people, uh, being home means very different things in terms of safety and their well-being. Um, Not to mention, you know, the general sense of, well, where is the world going? Like, what's? I hear a lot more difficulties from teens with just motivation. Like, why am I bothering with my schoolwork? My grades don't even matter right now. That kind of a thing. Um, Open questions about applying for college. What's that even going to look like by the time I get there? All of this stuff has been very, very disruptive to people in their teens and their early 20s um, who are in those phases where you're still trying to get to the rest of your life in a certain sense, where you're trying to figure out what that path is going to look like. Um, But really, I feel like that loss of just being able to see other people, you know, just a large variety of other people. And interact with them. We're all suffering from that, but students in particular, used to being in a school setting with a lot of their peers, um, that seems like it's been really huge. Also, just in general, I am hearing a lot more just of those thoughts of suicide and self harm coming up. Um, it's always there, but it seems like it has been a steadily worsening thing over the last year.
1: Yeah, looking at some data just uh, last week. Around emergency department visits in young people, and looking at you know, I've looked over the last few years. In twenty eighteen, a remarkable year, we have record numbers of teens um, coming to the emergency department with suicidal ideation, in a mental health crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, in uh, twenty nineteen, and then in twenty twenty, you have this constant. When you look at your data in twenty twenty, it's going like this, and then there's this dip that goes down to to March and April when nobody went anywhere at all, and then it spikes back up. But here's what's interesting. We're still not at 2018 levels. We've got a lot of teens who are coming to the ED now in mental health crisis. Here's the most interesting thing though. They're coming in a lot sicker. So this is telling me that we're not doing a good job of finding people where they are right now and intervening earlier we're seeing more suicide attempts, we're seeing more actual um, beyond ideation before somebody's reaching out to get help. And that scares me because I want people to know help is always available. Our friends at are always there. Finn, you work at Youthline, Kelly, you do too. And, and I hope you can talk a little bit about what help looks like because help is always there.
2: Um, Okay, so we have a social question right now, but then right after that, I definitely want to get back into those resources you're talking about, Robin. But currently our social question is, I'm a student with ADHD struggling during Zoom classes. Do you have any tips? What do you guys have?
3: I've been talking with people about this a lot over the last year, as you can imagine. Um, Specifically talking to, you know, teens at home, trying to do school, trying to concentrate. It's really hard. It's a totally different environment. Part of it is accepting that it's going to be hard and you're maybe not going to be producing like the best work of your life this year. And that's okay. Like, why would we expect you to somehow be magically able to handle this when it's just not the same, um, doing what you can to minimize distraction, you know, working in a place where you do have a little bit of accountability to stay on task can be really helpful. A lot of times, uh, people end up working in their uh, bedrooms, but sometimes working in the rest of the house, at least for part of the day, can give you something to remind you, like, okay, I do need to actually stay on task. Um, if you're having to listen to lectures, take notes, bringing in as much of your brain as you can, so when you're literally writing notes out by longhand uh, can help your brain internalize and remember this information. Um, and giving yourself breaks, you know, that's super, super important. Uh, Go for a walk, you know, reset, or even just do some jumping jacks, you know, whatever it is that kind of lets your body get that activation so that the rest of your brain can catch up. Um, None of this is perfect, but it can help.
1: And the only piece I'd add in there, I picked up my fidget spinner. Uh, You know, I've got a variety of different things that I can do to keep myself, you know, occupied. But getting a ball chair, you know, sitting on a ball, doing something different, getting a standing desk, doing things that can engage yourself, your core, yourself while you're fidgeting in there um, can be super helpful. Along with, I definitely agree with Nate, uh, with Dr. Nate, with go for a walk, take a break, do a set of jumping jacks, you know, whatever it is that you got to do, but but engage yourself physically is going to help.
2: So those are really great. And I really hope that our social question gets answered. I definitely love the idea of a yoga ball. I think that sounds so cool. I might have to get one for myself. But pulling back to like you were talking about before with those more serious statistics, what are resources we can go to right now? If someone's listening to this podcast and they're saying, well, I have these symptoms or I have these signs and I'm getting nervous for myself, where can they go? And also if Finn and Kelly want to speak on that, because you're both Youthline volunteers as well, open to all four of you.
0: Well, for I really Kelly. I really appreciate YouthLine being brought up. So as mentioned, yeah, uh, Kelly and I are teen volunteers at Oregon YouthLine. Well, it's just now known as YouthLine. Uh, but YouthLine is a national, international uh, peer-to-peer teen crisis support line. So we address crisis in all forms. A crisis can look a lot of different ways, especially for people in our age group. Um, so I'm sure we can get the information for youth line up on the screen below here, but I can always just say text teen to teen to 839-863 and find our phone number and other chatting options at oregonyouthline.org.
4: Yeah, and one of the biggest things I've learned while working on the lines is that everybody needs somebody. So one of the things we always try to figure out is who is a person that you can talk to in real life that you have a relationship with. And this can really be anyone. It could be like a coach, a teacher, a trusted sibling or a friend. And I think that that type of contact is really great as well if you're struggling.
3: That's perfect. Um, beyond that, obviously reaching out to you know, your doctor's office. Mo- many doctor's offices these days and all Providence ones have someone like myself who works there. Um, who they can connect you with very quickly and easily. Um, similarly, you know, through your school, very often there's counseling resources there, um, and of course, you can always talk to your parents and get their support and uh, looking for help as well.
1: I I agree with everything you all have said. You've said it far better. I think the only other resource that I would I would throw out there uh, is. For many people, they are still connected to uh, the church, to youth support groups and things like that. And if if you're not, you know, find a trusted adult somebody you can just go to and say, I'm having a tough time. And for us who are out there as trusted adults, when somebody graces you with their heart to tell you that they're struggling, always take them seriously, always.
4: Thank you so much for sharing and giving up, like some of these, giving up your time to come speak with us about these different resources. And we are getting close to our time. So, this will be our final question, unfortunately. And that question is How is social media affecting teen mental health? You know, we talked about the pandemic, and I feel like during the past few months, I've spent more time on social media. So, what are your thoughts on that?
3: I I feel like it helps. It's a point of contact, you know, it's a way to connect with your peers, with your friends, with uh with anyone, really. Um, we already talked about how, you know, through TikTok, you know, a lot of the normalizing around mental health that we're seeing is also a very big thing. Um, where social media can sometimes go a little off the rails with mental health is when we maybe start comparing ourselves to some of the more idealized versions of what we see on social media. Um You know, looking at your life and saying, well, I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm not traveling to that place and so on. And so trying to be mindful with how you use social media, going back to that point of what if this is helping me, what if this maybe isn't helping me and trying to be a little more selective in how you engage, Uh, you know, maybe unfollowing an account if it's not working for you, Um, but making sure that you're really using those parts where you get that connection you get that benefit. You feel like you're part of a community. Maybe leaving aside the parts that make you feel less.
1: So the only other thing I'd add in there is I think I do think it's has the potential. It is the communication platform that we have. I mean, this is how we've all stayed connected across this pandemic. And it's also the space where people show up with bad behavior. So remember to always flood the zone with positivity and always, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where somebody's in these, in these so charged times and charged conversations, our friends at hashtag I can help have great tips and tricks, tricks on their website. Uh, And they really are the experts in how you address negativity in the social media space. So if you're looking for help because you've got, you know, people with, harsh political views or, or whatever it is, check out the resources at hashtag I can help and and get educated about how you deal with that. And always continue to flood the zone with positivity because it's how we show up. And for me, I always want to show up as myself. And when I'm having a tough time, that's a great place also to reach out to a friend.
4: Yeah, connections are so important, and I love what you were talking about earlier with social media being really a highlight reel in a lot of ways, so drawing those boundaries as well.
2: Like Kelly said, it is so nice to hear licensed professionals saying that social media isn't this huge like terrible taboo space where everything is dangerous, right? There is a lot of positivity online and there's a lot of great resources we can find. I just wanted to send a personal thank you to both Nate and Dr. Robin for joining us. It has been so inspirational getting to talk to you and a big thank you to the people who sent questions. These were not just the three of our questions, but questions that we pulled from our peers and people we know. So we're so thankful that you've joined us here today.
4: If you are looking for help with processing anxiety or have any other medical questions, please make sure to visit providence.org. And for parents, teachers, students, feel free to check out worktobewell.org as well. Thank you everyone for tuning in today.